0: Let me begin reading to you from uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 3, at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of rage, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats and their holes and their hats and their other garments and they were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew these men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, and he rose up in haste and spoke and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto him, True, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Amen. May God bless to our hearts. This reading from his word. It's a little unusual for me to begin a sermon by talking about a couple of Catholics, but (laughs) I've been greatly impressed with the visit of the Pope to Poland this past week and the incredible courage that that magnificent man has shown. He is probably only the only person in the whole world who could go right into the teeth of the communist authorities and speak a word so boldly for Jesus Christ as he has spoken. And I think all of us should undergird that effort with our prayers. He's been very courageous and very brave indeed. And then I wanted to recall an incident that happened the other night. I had the privilege of speaking to a little group of Christians who were met for Bible study, who belonged to the National Professional Golfers Association. They were on the circuit and played in the Kemper down in Charlotte. And uh, their main speaker had not been able to come, and another speaker had not been able to come, and they worked their way all the way down to me. And uh, so someone called and said, was I available? And uh, so I was available. And uh, I went to, to speak with them. Well, I got the blessing. I got the blessing going and coming and being there too. Uh, I love the joy of seeing people like Rick Rick Messengale and and Kermit Zorley and Wally Armstrong who's usually there and a number of other people who are not only fabulous athletes, but who are great Christians and who have great uh, hardships imposed upon their families by the constant traveling and moving from motel to motel across the country, and yet who want their discipline. Uh, and their profession to honor Christ and who so openly share uh, what the Bible speaks to them and where their needs are and how they may relate their faith in Jesus to other people. But an interesting thing happened. My honorarium was a tape. Someone gave me a tape. And it was a tape of the National Prayer Breakfast. And one of our sons had driven me down and back and so we played two tapes uh, uh, Going and Coming. On the way back, we played the tape of the National Prayer Breakfast, which met this year in Washington. Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who is about 80 and who has always been sort of a Protestant Catholic uh, and uh, a tremendous uh, believer and a great communicator. Uh, Those of you who have watched him on television over the years know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Bishop Sheen is 80. I love to have these old men speak because they don't care what they say. And uh, so they didn't know whether he could come. They had to get two heart specialists to accompany him there because he has one foot in heaven already and the other one scratching. And uh, he, was, he, was, he was very weak, and uh, the heart doctor was there to attend him. They had Dr. Billy Graham lined up to speak in case he couldn't. And Bishop Sheen was so anxious to get what he had to say across that he had tape-recorded it and put it on a tape and asked that it be played if he was too weak to speak. And so there was a lot of high drama uh, to his very presence. And so when he spoke, uh, one of my friends who was present told me that there was a great hush that came over all of these 3,000 famous leaders and people from all over the world and people from all over Washington and the courts and the Congress and... And the leadership in government, and they waited for what the bishop would say and and they had to turn the microphone up a long way uh, to get his weak voice, but he made his voice to be strong. He said, "Mr. President, Mrs. Carter, and fellow sinners <laughs> and, and there was just that reaction, everyone laughed and uh, Then he turned and he said, uh, Mr. President, I heard your Sunday school lesson, a report of your Sunday school lesson in Plains, Georgia. And you were teaching on the book of Romans. And you said that all men were sinners. And so I've included you too. (laughs) And they applauded again. And uh, then uh, uh, he said that he wanted to speak. He wanted to speak very much about the rights and the duties, the privileges and the responsibilities that we have in our country, and then the fact that we are sinners. And he started off by saying that everyone was concerned about being liberated for something, from something. Everyone wanted to do their own thing. They wanted their own freedom. But he said, this is really not what this country was built on, individual things in that way. But that with each gift of freedom, there came a commensurate sense of responsibility. And so he proposed very boldly. He said, we have the Lady of Liberty on the East Coast who beckons people to come and enjoy liberties. Now I propose we build a statue on the West Coast and face it toward the country, and call it the Statue of Responsibility, that we need to know that with liberties and rights also come responsibilities and duties, that we must have them. And then he began to recount some very interesting things about what happened to the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. He said there were 56 signatures of dec- on the Declaration of Independence. What duties did these men perform for the rights and privileges which they were claiming? What happened to them? He said nine of them died in the Revolutionary War. Five of them were captured by the British and died under torture. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned to the ground. Dr. Witherspoon, the founder of the Log College, Princeton, to us Presbyterians, had his home and his library and his college burned to the ground. Thomas Keene was compelled to move from place to place five different times in five months. Thomas Nelson, when his home was occupied by General Cornwallis' Cornwallis's headquarters, Nelson demanded that General George Washington open fire and bombard his magnificent house, and it was burned all the way to the ground. And Thomas Nelson died in poverty. Seventeen out of the signers of the Declaration of Independence lost everything they had. They had pledged, as you all know, their lives and their liberty and their sacred honor. Many of them lost their lives. Many of them lost their liberty because they were put in prison. But none of them lost their honor. And this is a tremendous story of courage. It's a story of courage of what takes place and makes a nation great. And when we lose this sense of dedication, when we have no longer any sense of responsibility, then freedom becomes cheap and meaningless. And we get our freedom, Bishop Sheen, reminded us, not from Congress, not from the courts, but from God. That God is the creator, and he is the one who conveys to us freedom, and we have a responsibility to God and to God's commandments. And we've gotten a long, 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 long ways away from that in our national life today. It was a grand address on a very important topic. And it was fearless of him to bring it there in those circumstances and it was wonderfully received. Now then, I want to relate this to our theme this morning. I want to relate it to three magnificent young Hebrews who are mentioned in the New Testament and whose story is known to most of you. And I want also to scratch out the title of the sermon, which is, They Were Expendable, which is true, and I want to call it when it doesn't feel good and the reason I want to do this is that the second tape that I listened to on the way back from being down at the Kemper was by Elizabeth Elliot the famous author a brilliant and marvelous missionary and scholar who is a professor at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and who is now married to a very dear friend of mine, and who went to speak not long ago in a church. She's invited all over the country to speak. She's a tremendous speaker. And she was asked to speak in the fellowship hall, and she did. But she said to her utter horror, when she came into the fellowship hall, there was a banner placed up in back of her that said, If it feels good, do it. She was mortified. What in the world could be more contradictory to the plain teachings of Scripture than such an idiot slogan as that? Jesus said, let a man deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Not if it feels good, do it. Not don't let it all hang out. Not hang loose. Not this hedonistic, narcissistic worship of self and sensual pleasure. And in a brilliant manner, she goes all the way back into the Old Testament. She takes that story there that's given to us as the infallible word of God relates history. Of Abraham, the father of the faithful, being told to get up and to go out into a country, not knowing where he was going except that God had told him to go. And God didn't ask him how he felt. He told him to go. And he obeyed. And how Abraham, the friend of God, was tested most severely. When in his old age he wanted more than anything else in the world to have a son. And his wife, you will remember, was past the age of having children. And yet God granted them a special miracle in the birth of Isaac. And Abraham was so thankful to God to have Isaac. And then one day God spoke to Abraham and told him to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah. And to offer him as a sacrifice. Now, this distinguished writer said that if this were being written today, there would have been 57 pages written on the feelings of Abraham as he went with Isaac up Mount Moriah. But the Bible does not give one line to how he felt. The Bible stipulates the fact that he obeyed. He had faith, he obeyed. He did what God told him to do. It wasn't a matter of if it feels good, do it. And it didn't feel good to him. It didn't feel good to him to bind the wood on his son's back. And it didn't feel good to him to build up an altar. And it didn't feel good to him to hear his sweet, precious boy say to him, Father, here is the altar and here is the wood, but where is the lamb? God would provide that lamb. God will provide, said his father. God will provide. And he drew a knife up in obedience to God to kill his own son and God stopped him because in his own heart he would already killed his son. He had been willing to give him up for God. And so the lamb in the thicket was brought and sacrificed. And so a type of the lamb, the Lord Jesus, who would die at Calvary, was depicted for us in later years. But the important thing is that Abraham didn't do what felt good. He did what God told him to do. And then if you go through the pages of the Bible, you will see this determined faith occurring again and again and again and again. It's a faith that rests upon God and God's purposes ultimately prevailing. Jesus, our blessed Lord himself, had a closest of friends a kinsman whose name was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist loved Jesus. John the Baptist said of Jesus, May he increase and may I decrease. And told all of his followers, Go follow him. He is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And yet one day, when John had been taken by a horrible despot whose name was Herod, and placed into a dungeon and was filled with melancholy and remorse and hurt because he was hearing all kinds of news about how Jesus was raising the dead and healing the lepers and making the lame lame to walk and the blind to see. And so John sent a messenger and said, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And the marvelous thing about Jesus is that I've often said he didn't send him a little track on how to be happy in jail. He didn't chide him. He sent back word, John, remember what you were preaching to other people? Remember what you were preaching? All right, John, blessed is he who is not offended in me. You trust me. I'm working right on schedule. I'm doing what the Father sent me here to do. And then I think John must have in his heart been like those Hebrew children in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar and said to himself, My God whom I serve is able to deliver me and he will deliver me. But if not, O king, I will not bow down and serve thee. I will not surrender. And then Jesus himself in the garden of Gethsemane, surely you remember there how he prayed, Father, if it is thy will, let this cup pass from me. And he sweat as it were, great drops of blood. It didn't feel good. But he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done." This is tremendous faith. And Elizabeth Elliot told that remarkable story which some of us can still remember. I'll never forget that January day when I received the news of those missionaries, five of them, speared to death by the AUCA, the AUCA Indians, in Ecuador. A primitive Stone Age peoples who had had no contact, not only with no other white man, but no contact with any other Indian tribes even. They were hostile, and they killed any people who tried to approach them. And Jim Elliott, while he was a student at Wheaton College, had heard about them. And Jim Elliot had determined that somehow, some way, he wanted to reach this tribe so that they might know the love of Jesus. And Nate Saint an incredibly gifted pilot had scouted the jungles and they had seen villages where they had deserted and left and then one day he saw them from the air actual live naked savages running hither and yon and so he circled and they dropped gifts of machete and beads and various presents to the Alcas and they responded by seeming to show gratitude and then that ingenious man Nate Saint actually rigged up a device whereby he could let a bucket down uh, not only giving them gifts but allowing them to put in return some expressions uh, of friendliness on their part. They sent some roasted monkey legs and they sent some uh, even a live parrot and everything looked like the contacts were going to be friendly and after this had been performed uh, consistently and thoughtfully over a protracted period of time it seemed like everything was ready. And so the five young men, with their wives and their children, gathered together and had a service of dedication, and they sang a hymn, very much like the hymn we sung a while ago, How Firm a Foundation, a hymn by Mrs. Cherry called My Shield and Defender. They sang that hymn, and then they made their way and landed on a little tiny sandbar in the Courier River, And they made contact with the Indians at first. Everything seemed to go all right. And then they couldn't tell why. Something went wrong. And they were overrun and attacked one night. And all five of the American missionaries were speared to death. Two years after that, Elizabeth Elliot went back to the very same people. And when contact had been made, she took a tape recorder. She was seeking to reduce their language and sound into a written language so that they could communicate with them the good news about Jesus Christ and tell them other things that would be helpful. She had won their friendship. And she said that as she was going up a river one night with two of the natives paddling the canoe and had gotten into a bamboo shelter that had been built for them she would lie there in the tropical rain beating down and think about the fact that she was only married to Jim Elliot for two years and three months they had a little daughter Valerie and she thought what on earth am I doing here and she said it didn't feel good but I was there because God told me to go and it wasn't important how I felt. It was important that I obey. And so she took a tape recorder and put it up to the lips of the man who speared her husband to death. And he told her, because he had no guilt feelings about it, he'd killed animals, he'd killed men before, and it was no different to him. He told her that it was too bad that they could have met under different circumstances because actually Jim Elliot could have been there around the fire with them eating monkey meat and they could have been talking together. And then he said the the five foreigners were very hard to kill. We had to spear them over and over again to get them dead. Now she's listening to this description of the father of her little three-year-old girl, Valerie. And her own beloved husband who was killed. And she said, I begin to think of the thoughts that went through the other men's minds as they watched each other being killed. And of how they had prayed so fervently to God. And I know enough about how they were killed to know that it didn't feel good. But they were obedient. They obeyed. And this is the obedience that is precious in the sight of God. Within less than a year, a thousand, young people had volunteered to take their place in the mission field. By the time her best-selling book, The Shadow of the Almighty, was out, Bible schools and seminaries were flooded with people wanting to become missionaries and missionary pilots and linguists to go and to help. The devil never has learned not to overplay his hand. The seed of the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs, is the seed of the church. And it's true. And so last year a Catholic, uh, last year Solzhenitsyn spoke to us about the great spiritual resurgence among those who have suffered behind the Iron Curtain in Russia. And this year the Pope speaks to a, his own people in Poland. And maybe we've had it so easy here in America that we've let slip the great values that count. And so we need to be called back to the faith that honors God. And the faith that honors God here in these three Hebrew children is so remarkable. You know the story. Nebuchadnezzar was a despot. He had had grand success with his five-year plans. Tremendous success. Had built fabulous buildings had brought in a reign of pros- prosperity, and yet he had these captured Jews who were there, and then, like despots and politicians today are want to do, when they really become big, they almost become demon-possessed. They become that way when they try to act like gods. And so he had a big statue 80 feet tall, made out of gold. Think how much that would cost at $280 an hour. Put up today. And there are still people bowing at Nebuchadnezzar. You have a Nebuchadnezzar in the East where the Communists have a materialistic state and oppress people and demand that they submit to it. And we have a subtle Nebuchadnezzar here in Western culture where we bow at the shrines of material possessions and sensual feel-good experiences and always want to assert our liberties with never wanting to fulfill our responsibilities and so the hideous breakdown in family life with people living together who are not married homosexuality paraded by the church as an acceptable lifestyle and delight of God's Word, it is absolutely condemned. And a preacher in Dallas whose exegesis of Romans 1 pointed it out got taken off the air. And the writer, the the TV guy, this is really tremendous. If you don't think we got Nebuchadnezzars now, you don't know. WFAA TV station manager Dave Lane said the program was canceled because we believe that our religious program should not deal with such matters. We cover this type of controversy in our news in public affairs. They also cover it in all their stupid sit comedies where they promote it. Um, In an interview with the news media, Lane further stated that he did not feel religious organizations had a basis for getting involved in controversial issues. Great day. He included such issues as homosexuality, abortion, gun control, liquor by the drink, and euthanasia. What does he want us to preach about? That would mean you rip out the Ten Commandments. And yet this is the kind of trend that's taking place. Nebuchadnezzar and the golden statue are raised up and we are supposed to bow. But these young men When they were faced with this choice, they had already determined in their hearts what they would do. They had determined that they wouldn't bargain with God like Jacob. You remember Jacob? He said, oh, God, if you uh, prosper me and get me out of this jam I'm in with my brother, I'm going to give you 10% of everything I make. They didn't say that. They said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. We know his power in history. He delivered our people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He delivered them down through history. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us. And then with a hilarity, they said, but if not, O king, we still are not going to bow down to your golden image nor serve you. Now that's faith. Faith without risk is not faith. But here, they're willing to lay it on the line. I know people who pray, Oh God, if you'll just get me through this cancer, get me through this operation, I promise you I'm going to do this. Why don't you say, Lord, no matter what happens, I'm yours. You know what's best. I want to ask you for it. But if you say no... I know that you love me more than I love myself, and I know that you love my family more than I love them. And I'm not going to tell you what you must do in order to please me. I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to submit to your will. You remember that's what Jesus did in the garden when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I think everyone here knows that I like flowers, and everyone knows that I don't like that little poem that says the kiss of the sun for pardon, the songs of the bird for mirth. You're nearer God's heart in a garden than any place else on earth. <laughs> you pull a few weeds. You, uh, you uh, are nearer God's heart in this garden, in Gethsemane, where you say, but if not, but if not, oh God, I'm still yours. I'll still serve you. Because these men had a sense of history. And because they prayed. And then because of the presence. Do you notice that they were thrown into this burning fiery furnace? And when they were thrown in there, this remarkable thing happens. The king rolls up to look down and to see them. They fell down burning into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished. It means he was terrified. And he rose up in haste and he spake and said to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto him, True, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four. And one of them is like unto the Son of God. What did Jesus make a promise to us before he went up to heaven? Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, that I will be with thee, five missionaries in Ecuador when they die, that I will be with you in your nervous breakdown when your child has gone wrong, when your business has failed, when you're not a big success. The golfers asked me the other night, Because some caddy had said, why if you're a Christian, don't you always win the tournament? If you did that, you'd have a line of people from here to New York, wanting to join up. The faith that is precious to Jesus is the faith that in darkness abides. Some are delivered, these men were delivered. But in that passage which Hicks read to you a while ago from Hebrews, I hope you caught that phrase but some not accepting deliverance looked for a better resurrection, better than the way that they had planned, trusting in the God of history and trusting in him by prayer. And let me say this in closing. I've often told the story of Samuel Rutherford. Yesterday, Friday, I went to see one of our members who had some books from Scotland. And we were looking at pictures of St. Andrews. And we were looking at uh, the castle there. And I couldn't help but think of a tiny little Scot who's buried there, whose name was Samuel Rutherford, a wee tiny man. Oh, he was a stalwart warrior for Jesus. He had been in Aberdeen prison, and it's cold in Aberdeen. you are right there on the North Sea. And he had contracted consumption. He was dying. He had finally been released from prison. Briefly, He had gone to St. Andrews where he was a professor of theology. And then comes the bailiff from the high sheriff's court in Edinburgh to St. Andrews to serve a summons on him. To tell him that he is to appear in court. And do you know what that canny little Scot said to the, to the bailiff? Go and tell your masters that I have already received a prior summons to appear before a superior judge and judicator. And ere your day come, I shall be where few kings, and great folk go. (laughs) That was Samuel Rutherford. That was the faith of the covenanters. That was the faith of those who loved Jesus even unto death. What about Paul? In the end of the great letter to the Romans, he says, Who shall separate us from Christ? Not the furnace of life, nor the savagery of death, not chaos or ruin, nor, nor a world in flames. And then that verse which Elizabeth Eliot claimed and which I printed in the bulletin this morning, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. When thou walkest through the fire, the flame shall not kindle upon thee. Deliverance in the day of trial? Yes, please God, we can pray for deliverance. But if not, if the Father should will otherwise, then, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. It was said that when Savonarola, that great preacher of the gospel of Christ, was persecuted and hounded by the vicious church of his day, and being marched out to death, that a crowd were watching him go through the streets of Florence in Italy. They saw that his lips were speaking and they were trying to figure out what he was saying. And he kept saying over and over and over and over, you may kill me if you like, you may kill me if you like, you may kill me if you like, but you will never tear the risen Christ out of my heart. And they didn't. He won. And so, so what? The big bombs, the big armies, God's people and God's purposes in history will win. And we can win too when we understand his providence, when we stay with him in prayer, and when we know the secret of his presence. Paul in Colossians 3 says, If ye be raised with Christ, then keep your mind fixed on things above and not on things on the earth. That's what we need to do. The RAF during World War II defended Britain against certain invasion by Hitler's forces in what Hitler called Operation Sea Lion. Through the RAF, to whom Winston Churchill said, never did so many owe so much to so few. The way they did it was this, when a radar operator picked up the enemy flying across the English Channel and coming over the English countryside, right away he picked up a phone and called a command post and the spotter said one word, scramble, and they ran to get into their airplanes and to get into the air and get high to the high altitude. Because when you get the high altitude, you have the advantage. You can shoot down on the enemy. So Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And we believers, to have victory over the evil one, we need to get that high altitude in Christ. Be seated with him at the right hand of God. Have our mind fixed firmly upon the things that honor and please him. Let us bow in prayer. As a part of our closing prayer, I want to use words which Bishop Fulton Sheen used as a prayer at the prayer breakfast. They're taken from our Presbyterian hymnal. O God of earth and altar, bow down and hear our cry. Our earthly rulers falter, our people drift and die. The walls of gold in us, the swords of scorn. Divide, take not thy thunder from us, but take away our pride. From all that terror teaches, from lies of tongue and pen, from all the easy speeches that comfort cruel men, from sale and profanation of honor and the sword, from sleep and from damnation. Deliver us, good Lord. And Father, we pray that the things which we vicariously experience as a thrill, and knowing about great missionaries and great heroes of the faith, and our great and loving Savior and his apostles, may be more than just things that create within us a temporary enthusiasm, but that you will put the type of granite in our bones that ought to exist, so that we will be faithful in a time when it's so easy to slide away from that which lasts for all eternity. For any year here this day who have not yet known Jesus, help them to be willing to come to him, to find rest for their souls, but a yoke upon their shoulders so that they may learn from him and work for his glory. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our teacher and our guide be and abide with us all, both now and forevermore.